Hello, and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Ghosts? No, well, we think of tea, pubs, and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Hello everyone, my name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host. Simon! I told you we weren't doing that. (laughs) This week is our special Halloween episode, long promised, on George Orwell and the paranormal. But before we start, Simon, how do you feel about wishing people a happy Halloween? It's ridiculous, isn't it? Celebrating all the origins is celebrating the dead. So are you you wishing people a death? Well, I think it's quite a good thing to celebrate the dead. You're not wishing people death. This is the beginning of the dark, especially if you come from the Northern Hemisphere, this is the beginning of the dark half of the year when... uh, Don't you find things are a bit more... Don't you always find that in, in this half of the year, between autumn and the beginning of spring, your thoughts turn to to the past, to uh, stranger the stranger night side of life? Have you ever found that, or is that just me? Obviously, it's influenced by the long nights we have in the Northern Hemisphere. We're both British, so around this time, it starts getting dark soon after four o'clock. And it's very much six months of darkness. You go to work in the dark, you come home in the darkness. And it affects your mood. It affects your thought process. So I think you're absolutely right. And because of that, because of the um, temporal atmosphere with the weather and the light, you're just inclined to think about negative things and regret the past, death, mortality. This is going to be a really fun episode. (laughs) Um, One reason why I'm never sure whether to wish people a happy Halloween or not is this. I find it really unnatural to say happy Halloween. It's very... Supernatural. (laughs) Um, I don't find it normal. Paranormal. Paranormal. Uh, Because I think growing up, um, our Halloween was increasingly influenced by American Halloween. Um, And I find saying Happy Halloween to be quite an American thing. No offence to our American listeners, but it just kind of jars a bit with me. I I don't know if you feel that. I agree. It's it's the commercialisation of what was a quite noble thing to celebrate. Honouring, remembering the dead. And in some countries they still do it in a very traditional way, but... Yeah, we, like you say, as became commercialised, as we came under the burdening influence of America. And I, I find it quite distasteful now. I'm not a big fan of Halloween, to be honest. I'm a fan of Halloween in that I'm a fan of spooky things. Halloween is, of course, the goth Christmas. And uh, this is the start of the half of the year that, you know, I read ghost stories all year, but I feel like I'm particularly justified in reading them at this time. Well, you do perk up around October because your pale skin and ginger hair suddenly isn't a burden. And this, is, this is your time, isn't it? The I sun's can, gone. I can leave the house, you can leave the house. in my cloak yeah. to wreak havoc upon the world once again. You can start collecting those milky bars again. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, they're on me. <laughs> So, George Orwell and the paranormal is our topic for tonight. Um, Usually, regular listeners will know that we choose a specific Orwell essay and discuss it, but today it's more of an Orwellian theme, Orwell and the paranormal. But I hear the listeners ask, is there any connection between Orwell and the paranormal? He was a socialist, he was an atheist. Um, Did he believe in that kind of thing. Well, we've done a bit of reading around the subject and we found out a few things, haven't we, Simon? We have, but I'd like to add something to that by saying you have to be careful when you are a fan of or a follower of a certain figure in history or in current times, not to reach too far in ascribing things to them. Do you know what I'm saying? So, Orwell and the paranormal, I think we're at the limit here. There's only so much we can take from it. Yeah, and you start. I start to wonder, was this 
a, a rather tenuous subject with regards to Orwell. But because of it being Halloween and you being a student of these things, like paranormal folklore and whatnot, it, I think it's relevant for us to do it. But in the future, I don't think we'll reach quite this far. I, uh, I think it's definitely a, a one-episode kind of thing, but let's get into it. I, I think you brought to us... Orwell and breakfast cereals. I, this happens too much in academia. People are in a certain genre, and they like something else, and they always try to merge the two fields together in a way that just isn't sometimes there. Oh, yes, you remind me. Sorry, this is going off on a tangent, but what's a podcast for? It reminds me of the time uh, when I was in an English literature class and our professor started pointing out how there's only so much you can say about Shakespeare uh, after several hundred years of scholarship, which is why all of the latest PhDs are things like the significance of footwear in Shakespeare's comedies. Exactly, exactly. And I found now that every, especially in the liberal arts, every academic field now is trying to get on the effects of lockdown bandwagon so semantics and lockdown the significance of pragmatics and discourse in lockdown it's sure it's some interesting stuff but they just know they have a higher chance of being published because it's on in vogue you know and we are doing that because it's halloween (laughs) paranormal activities are in vogue so we're ascribing it to george orwell let's give it a go Let's get into it. I sent Simon a few things to read this week. Um, but I couldn't open them in public. Oh, the ghosts. No, not, not the stuff. Uh, uh, not that stuff. Not the stuff in the, the brown, other stuff. Not the stuff in the brown paper envelopes. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, I want that back. Sorry. One of the essays I sent you this week, uh, which I think relates to what you were saying about only being able to go so far with this subject, was the essay Orwell and the Paranormal. Uh, which is published on the Orwell Society website. Excellent essay by a guy called Philip Bounds. Shout out to him. Uh, what did you make of that essay, Simon? You were bound to give him a shout out. I know that. Oh, Philip. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the essay. And what I particularly enjoyed the essay is he kind of, he's kind of backing up what I just said. He said, let's be careful of ascribing too many things to Orwell, especially the paranormal. And I felt his title was just a way in to something else where he was talking about more about how it's associated with politics in a way and the far right, his liking for paranormal activities. Or indeed the idea that Orwell associated the occult and the paranormal with the far right, which we'll get onto in a bit. But the the main points I took from Bounds' essay was... The idea of the inconsistency, the surprising inconsistency. Why does this socialist atheist show some interest, some uh, patience with the paranormal? Uh, And he touches on various incidents in in Orwell's life and things he wrote that we'll mention. But I would say, actually, it's not a matter of inconsistency. And he comes to that conclusion as well. It actually is part of... Orwell's, it fits into what I think are Orwell's major concerns, but but we'll get on to that later. I read one of this guy's earlier essays, and it wasn't that good. He's he's come on leaps and bounds since then. I wouldn't criticise him, I think that's out of bounds. So, the first thing I wanted to talk about this evening was a very common form of supernatural or paranormal belief which touches us all. Uh, Superstition. Okay. Orwell was described as a bit of a superstitious man. Um, There was an incident, wasn't there, mentioned in a couple of the articles, uh, something that happened to him in in school. Do you remember that? Is that where he performed some kind of ritual where he took the leg off something? About an an older boy in uh, in Eton. He didn't take the leg off the old boy. Even Eton's not that fierce. Or, Or a figurine. Yes, it was basically a kind of voodoo. He and a friend, Orwell and a friend, when they were eaten, made a wax voodoo doll of an older boy, a kind of bully, very popular bully, like captain of the football team and all that sort of thing. 
They wanted to shove a pin through the figure's heart, but the other boy, Orwell's friend, wasn't keen on it. So Orwell broke the leg off this figure. A couple of weeks later, the, this bully was playing in a football match, broke his leg, and within a year or so, died of leukaemia. I know, and Orwell went on to say that it never left him throughout his lifetime, it that was, memory. People, uh, critics have said that he kind of, he and the other boy carried it like a kind of guilty secret, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because even, you know, we can rationalise that. We can say, well, it was coincidence. Yeah. But when you're that young, you do have a belief in that kind of thing. Many of us do, anyway. Yeah. I remember being that age and wishing for things very, very hard. And sometimes when they came true... Uh, I would be a bit frightened because I would think, my God, I've done that with the power of my mind. And, <laughs> and, and I don't know if this ever happened to you, but there's a stage, I think, maybe when you're between kind of childhood and becoming a teenager, when you're very conscious about your thoughts and you're worried about, again, this is turning into therapy, but you're worried about your thoughts having some kind of external influence. Yeah, but that's probably just linked to your conscience, isn't it? Mm. You're, you're logically aware it's not going to have any external influence. You're just, but it's be, just being translated into a guilty conscience. When I went to boarding school, when, when I was about 14, a bunch of us, we'd been planning it for ages, and we stayed up to about two in the morning, all gathered in the middle of the dormitory with our duvets and huddled together, about 10 of us, and we'd made a Ouija board. And it was really dark, it was wintry, and we had a couple of torches shining on it. And we all put our hand on the thing together. And I remember one of the teachers at the school had just gone. Halfway through the term, had gone. There had never been any explanation. And we were like 13, 14. We couldn't understand why this teacher had just gone. I guess he must have just been disciplined for something or personal problem. But our question was... Has Mr. I won't say his name, but has Mr. So and so died? And the thing with all our hands on it moved to yes. And I just remember it being being incredibly afraid. And I immediately took my hand off. I said, I'm I'm no longer taking part in this. This is too much for me. I was really scared. It had a profound effect on me. I've never done one since. Interesting. And you're again. Like, like Orwell, you're an atheist, very mm. rational person, but you would still avoid a Ouija board, would you? Yeah, not because I fear the paranormal. I, I just think, like you said, when you do something as a child and it has a profound effect on you, you carry that. Mm. Again, it, so I've just got this mental block, I think, when it comes to Ouija boards. And so we can kind of um, imagine how Orwell might have felt, because not only would it have had a profound effect the fact that something had happened and there was that that link between the leg and the, the leg of the doll and the broken leg. But to, to feel like you might have another boy's death on your conscience yeah. at that time, at that age, um, even once you were old enough to realise that it, it was most likely a coincidence. Yeah. Um, later on as well, uh, Orwell was said to have been a bit superstitious about his name. Now, of course, this has gotten overblown in later years, but he did write to a friend about how strange it was to see his name in print. Did you uh, come across that? I didn't, know. Um, when he first started getting pieces published, he was writing to a friend and said, it's very strange to see your name in print, and it does make you a bit nervous because it makes you feel like someone could do some kind of dark magic knowing your name. And if you've ever looked into kind of occult practices and so-called magic, yeah. the idea of naming and knowing the name of something, it's in, it's in like demonology. If you know the name of a demon, you have power over that demon. Um, it is very much a kind of occult concern. Well, well as you know, next year I'm, I'm starting work at a new university and I have to write a page about myself for the university website. And I'm very reluctant to do it. I don't like my name with my profession, I, this is my inner life, being there in the public. Social media is different because it's just nonsense. I just put a picture of me eating a 
piece of bread. A Branston pickle all down your throat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a disgrace of a <laughs> But for some reason, I'm really, I'm really reluctant to do that. Have my name out there attached to my profession, which what is, is basically about, my raison d'etre. What is it about our names, especially? Is it that idea that the, the name is power? The name is our it's personality? The, it's just the, the metaphysical representation of us, isn't it? And a simple name can be the controlling influence over you for another person. Of course, this um, comment of Orwell's that he was afraid some dark magic, I'm sure he meant it mainly as a joke, but of course that translates to 80 years later a journalist in the Daily Mail writing George Orwell was afraid of someone doing voodoo with his name. This is the problem. When, when you're living in poverty, it's very difficult to know that 80 years after your death, not only will your, will your name have become an adjective, but your every word you ever wrote will be hung upon by people doing podcasts, movies, TV shows and columns. So a lot of things that people like Orwell say in jest end up getting blown out of proportion. I, I, I suspect this is one of them. You think it was mainly in jest? I do. I wanted to start off kind of at the thin end of the wedge, superstition, because we all have superstitions. Do you have any superstitions? Yeah, I don't walk over three drains, I salute magpies. I didn't know about three drains. Yeah, I don't walk under ladders. Why, why, do, you, why do you go, go along with these superstitions? Because you see, again, you strike me as a very no-nonsense sort. I, I, Lewis... I wish I had an answer for you, because if I had an answer, I wouldn't do it. You've done it since childhood? Yeah. Is it be probably because... I think it's because... It's habit. Going. How about you? Oh, yes. I mean, I salute I, magpies. I imagine you have many. Salute, <laughs> salute <laughs> magpies. Um, Taking an hour to cut a tomato. <laughs> yes, that's a very specific one. Yeah. Um, I think that's a syndrome, actually. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and... Um, Oh, uh, there's actually one I've adopted since childhood, which is, I was, I was taught it by my Russian spouse and family. It's, um, if you leave the house and you forget something and you have to go back, before you go out the door again, you need to look at yourself in a mirror and just run your hand through your hair. I can explain that one. You know, I think, again, it can be rationalised as just taking a moment to stop and think, have I left anything else? Or just just sorting your hair out, maybe. Because maybe you're in a rush and you didn't run a comb through it. Um, so there's that as well. And um, I'm trying to think if there's anything when, else. When I lived in Spain, when you clink glasses and have that first sip of the drink, you have you say, ojos. You have to look mm -hmm. in each other's eyes. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, it's seven years of bad sex. I've heard that. Um... I think that's a European thing. Oh, is it? Because I brought it with me to Japan and people aren't understanding why I'm gazing at them as I have my drink. <laughs> Just say, oh, it's all right, it's about sex. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been eight years now, so... <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I've been overcome. Oh, before we move on from superstitions, um, superstitions are still rife in the sporting world. Have you, have you come across uh, pre-match superstitions in your time involved in sport? I'm sure I have, but people don't tend to talk about, talk about them. About them. Yeah. I, I personally don't Again, talk about it. It might affect you. Exactly, yeah. Um, I'm sure there were, but it, I personally never had any. Um, just drink. I, actually, there's a hiking. Do you have any superstition? Well, hiking's hiking. not really. Uh, I don't count it as a sport, so it's but, not a competitive. But sport. It's, it's it's a pastime which can be wrought in danger, as opposed to many other pursuits. That's true. That's true. But I've never. That's the thing, I suppose, because I've not been hiking since infancy. I haven't like been given. Any... How about do you? Wouldn't you know when people put the piles of stones? Oh, making. A do care. you always add one? Not always, no, which I suppose is another example of how I'm a very bad Scotsman, because uh, you would expect that I would, but... Uh, yeah. They're just there to save people's lives, Lewis, that's all. What are they? Yeah. Or is it, is it, do you crawl into it if you get stuck? No, so you know where you're going. In, in bad weather. Oh, right, oh, great, I'm on top of the mountain, I'm glad I know that now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just all the way up, <laughs> should be anyway. Or down. Yeah. Let's move on from superstitions to astrology which I think is kind of one level up that not so many people not not everyone is interested in Orwell 
I, I ask you to read a tiny page of an Orwell essay relating to astrology. Did you get, get around to that? So he wrote an essay about the Irish poet W.B. Yeats. And in his essay, Philip Bounds says that Orwell somewhat unfairly calls Yeats a bit of a fascist or a fascist sympathiser because of Yeats's interest in occultism. And do you remember why he called Yeats a bit of a fascist? It was because, to Orwell, anyone who believed... You went in to a fancy dress party dressed as a Nazi. Because who would do that? You're thinking of royalty. <laughs> um, it was because, for Orwell, anyone who could believe in astrology, in these higher powers, or in what Orwell called the cyclical universe, anyone who could believe in these things was not progressive because they always could fall back on the idea that things will change. Thing, not only will things change, but things will go back to how they were. Now we might be living in an age of foment and revolution, but soon enough we'll be back to the good old hierarchy. And I wanted to ask you, Simon, astrology and a belief in occult practices in general, really conservative, fascist? They are very much linked with conservatism and fascism, but I've met enough hippies in my time who are definitely not fascists I think, who do believe in these things. I think that's the big change since Orwell's time, because in Orwell's time, these were kind of elite beliefs. Like Alistair Crowley and mm. so on. Not that Crowley was a fascist, and in fact Crowley did offer to do some work against the Nazis during the Second World War, but these kind of elite beliefs in ritual magic that, you know, involves a tiny group of initiates who are in the know. Now, it's very elitist, these kind of beliefs. But Orwell was living, and he died long before the so-called New Age, when, as you say, hippies and left-wing types became interested well, in Counterculture. Kind of counterculture, exactly. And I wonder what Orwell would have made of the counterculture, because um, I believe he knew Aldous Huxley. In fact, I believe Aldous Huxley taught Orwell French in e at Eton. Really? Yes. But I didn't know. Before, apparently he was a really bad French teacher. Apparently <laughs> um, he was all over the place, apparently. Um, but um, I wonder, you know, what... Because, of course, Orwell died before Huxley started doing his serious experiments with mescaline and the doors of perception and all that sort of thing. I wonder what Orwell would have... I think he would have found all that rather self-indulgent. Yeah. I don't think it would have appealed to his sort of Spartan planting vegetables and making your own jam kind of and attitude. The, the counterculture's tendency to idolise figures such as Mao Zedong as well, I think Orwell would have found very distasteful. What we need to remember as well is, in a way, when Orwell was writing about Yeats, occultism for certain members of the elite was kind of the order of the day. We, don't, we think about the interwar period as this time of great political strife, but there was also a lot of paranormal stuff in the news in the 20s and 30s. The word poltergeist had been in the English language since the Victorian era, but... Sounds Greek to me. It's German. Oh, Geist, of course. Um, noisy spirit. Polter? Um, noisy or knocking, I think. That, oh. Even sounds a bit like knocking, polter. Right. So zeitgeist is spirit of the day. Spirit of the age. Yeah. Um, but there had been some... I mean, the, the, the 20s and 30s was when the word poltergeist entered common parlance, and there were several very high-profile poltergeist cases in the news in the 20s and 30s. So occultism and the paranormal was quite big in the interwar period. And we know, of course, that there was a kind of supernatural, paranormal tinge to fascism. I mean, we all know about the so-called Nazi occult. Yeah. Um, I am not, I'm not comparing the Catholic Church and uh, the occult, but we must remember, of course, that uh, Franco and the nationalists in Spain had very strong belief in an afterlife and in the truth of the Catholic religion um, and in tradition and, and all that sort of thing. So um, the idea of an unseen world and unseen powers seemed very much of the right at that time, didn't it? But I, I'm not sure if 
you can put a blanket across all of the rights association with the occult. Like you say, it, it, the nationalists of Spain was because of its association with Catholicism. Yet the Nazis' association with the occult wasn't that to do with proving the origins of Arianism. Yes, and it was also um, the. I think it was also sort of centered around the fact that. I mean, the Nazis really rejected Christianity completely, so they were trying to replace it with this kind of weird pseudo-pagan religion with Hitler at the centre, and as you say, trying to... doing what so many ideologies do, which is trying to hang their ideology on a pre-existing ancient frame to give it legitimacy. And, and the Nazis were a very astute group of politicians at controlling the narrative, at least of how they looked and the atmosphere around them, hence their Nuremberg rallies and the cinematography with the Nazis. And I think the occult and the mysticism of it and the fantasism of it was quite attractive to the Nazis in attracting new followers. I want to get now onto the third part and what I'd like to call the thick end of the wedge, the thick end of my spooky wedge. And <laughs> um, for the listener, I'm just shaking my head. I, I need not say anything. And talk about ghosts, the subject I absolutely love. Before we start, Simon, do you believe in ghosts? I don't. Do you? I don't believe in ghosts, but... I always like to say I do believe people have strange experiences. I do yeah. believe I do believe people have odd experiences that can't be explained. And if someone says to me, I saw a ghost, or if someone says to me, I don't believe in ghosts, but, which is always a lovely conversation starter at a party, yeah. certain time of the evening, <laughs> uh, third drink, fourth drink in. If anyone ever says that to me, I will not scoff at them. I will not say to them that they were hallucinating or that they were uh, they had partaken in mind-altering substances. I will listen to their story and I will give them the benefit of the doubt. So you believe when somebody says, or somebody of repute says they've seen a ghost, you believe that they believe they saw a ghost? Indeed. Or I think, you know, well, what do we mean by ghost? We really mean a weird happening that can't quite be explained. And I want to illustrate that with listeners. This is exciting. George Orwell's <laughs> own personal ghost story. I'm going to read it out. What's the name of the village? Walberswick. Walberswick. Which I can't... Such a, such a village name, isn't it? Walberswick. I can't quite remember where it was. It might have been Hertfordshire. Um, but uh, this was a letter written in 1931. Well, he, was, he was tramping there, wasn't he? He was. This was while he was doing his research for... I thought um, he was tramping in Suffolk. No, he went through Kent. He was hopping in Kent, okay. picking hops. So, Oh, it's in, it's in Kent then, because he talks about that. Oh, yes, yeah, so I think he does. Um, so he was in Walberswick doing research, uh, posing as a tramp for uh, down and out in Paris and London. And he wrote to his friend Dennis Collings on the 16th of August, 1931. So, he says here, I'm going to read quote, quote from Orwell. This is from his, the excellent Penguin Life in Letters. I haven't anything of great interest to report yet about the lower classes. And I'm really writing to tell you about a ghost I saw in Walberswick Cemetery. I want to get it on paper before I forget the details. See plan below. And there's a plan, quite detailed, very stuck. Do you think maybe we can get that plan onto the I might put it on the old Facebook or the Instagram page. Yeah. So, again, quoting Orwell. Above is Walberswick Church, as well as I can remember it. At about 5.20pm on the 27th of July, 1931, I was sitting at the spot, mar spot marked star, looking out in the direction of the dotted arrow. I happened to glance over my shoulder and saw a figure pass along the line of the other arrow, disappearing behind the masonry and presumably emerging into the churchyard. I wasn't looking directly at it and so couldn't make out more than that it was a man's figure, small and stooping, and dressed in lightish brown. I should have said a workman. I had the impression that it glanced towards me in passing. 
but I made nothing of the features. At the moment of its passing, I thought nothing, but a few seconds later it struck me that the figure had made no noise, and I followed it out into the churchyard. There was no one in the churchyard, and no one within possible distance along the road. This was about twenty seconds after I had seen it, and in any case there were only two people in the road, and neither at all resembled the figure. I looked into the church. The only people there were the vicar, dressed in black, and a workman who, as far as I remember, had been sawing the whole time. In any case, he was too tall for the figure. The figure had therefore vanished, presumably in hallucination. What do you make of that? I find it interesting how he ends the story with, presumably in hallucination. Starts the story with, this is about a ghost I saw. Yeah, ends and ends it. it with, presumably a hallucination. So as he's writing, he's saying to himself, no, 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 no. Logic, logic, logic. And it's very, uh, some commentators have mentioned how, of course, you know, Orwell worked for five years as a policeman. Yeah. He was used to writing police reports. And that is somewhat like a very straightforward, I was proceeding down the high streets at eight o'clock in the morning. And he's currently living as a tramp. So he's not eating well, he won't be sleeping well. And when you don't eat and you don't sleep, you do start to suffer from poor eyesight. That's a very good point. I don't know, I've never been so hungry as to hallucinate. He might have been suffering from like very early symptoms of TB as well, because I, I believe TB can affect you. Yeah. I don't know if it causes hallucinations, but I do know it affects you mentally. And I think some of the things he was drinking in his time as a Trump, mostly um, moonshine. But then don't you think that if, if he had thought that it was to do with hunger, he might have mentioned it. He might even have put it in the book to mention the effects of hunger upon a tramp. That's true. That's true. But you're right that there is very much this focus on facts and events, not feelings. Um, whenever there's a ghost story that involves a lot of feelings, it can be a little difficult to take it seriously. Yeah. And he might have had deep feelings about this. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written a letter to somebody about it. And he's just trying to justify it to himself through logic, through the systematizing of what happened. And it shows also um, Orwell's real interest in the psychology of the paranormal, because I think this is one of the things we can take from our discussion, is that Orwell, like, I think like us, would not scoff at someone who said they saw a ghost, but they, he would very much look at it from a psychological angle. What does this mean about... What does this indicate about the human mind? Yeah. And I just want to say as well that that's the kind of ghosts, you know, quote-unquote true ghost story that I really love. I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts with, again, quote-unquote true ghost stories, and when people start saying, oh, and then I found out there was a demon in my fridge and I had to buy some sage and... You switch burn off. It, I switch off. But my favourite ghost stories are, I don't believe in ghosts, but I saw this weird thing, that's what happened, I've got no explanation for my, it. My dad had an experience. Do you think he'd mind you sharing it? Uh, not at all, but I mean, I have my theory about it. It's quite a long one, but I'll, I'll paraphrase, okay? So, upon retiring from the army, he got a job at Winchester College, the famous Winchester, as head porter. And he, he went there first. My mum stayed behind with Erlun before. He went to settle in and they gave him some lodgings in, in the college. Now, Winchester College is very, very old. It's like 700 years old or something, the college. And this guy said to him, uh, a tutor there, oh, by the way, where you're staying tonight's haunted by blah, 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 my darling. Yeah, okay. I mean, if you think I'm dour and lo logical, meet him, okay? Like, 40 years in the army does, the, does it to you. But anyway, that night, he felt something. Didn't see anything, but he felt something. He felt a presence and smelt something. And that's cutting a long story short, but it didn't really change him, but he was convinced by it. My theory being, when somebody tells you something, 
The mind is a very powerful tool over which we have little control. If you think, if, if, you're, if, you're, if somebody tells you, oh, I think you might have a tumour in your elbow, you watch how over the next week you start getting a little bit of an aching pain in that elbow, even though they were just joking. Do you see what I mean? I think that might happen to him. It would have been an interesting thing if he had had the bad feeling and then, then the next day they had said... Yes, I agree with you. How about you or your friends or family? Any, any Could you paraphrase any experiences? Well, um, again, my dad, I don't think he would mind me sharing this. And if he does, I'll edit it out. Before um, he saw a ghost and then he realised it was just his milky ginger His milky son. ginger son. <laughs> 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 And your mum was like, no, that was a painful labour. <laughs> so, oh God, you are cruel. Um, so, uh, my dad, uh, much like you, uh, took part in a, in a Ouija in, in board. In Lewis fashion. <laughs> in a Ouija board sales. Oh, really? And it was it was fashionable back then, because he was a young man, late, late 60s, early 70s. Very. So cool. when you say young man, like... I mean, I was 13. Oh, he was kind of 14. mid to late teens at that time. Okay, so more or less. And he was staying in a very old house, it used to be a hunting lodge, a um, couple of hundred years old, belonged to a friend, and the friend's family had seen some weird things in there. Who was his friend? Sebastian Flight? No, no, it was a very... <laughs> it, it was the, the friend's parents uh, ran an old folks' home, and they were turning this big old house into an old folks' home. Okay. So uh, my dad and his friends would go around and they'd have seances uh, and they had a few weird experiences during the seances. You could maybe put that down to mass hysteria. But my dad's... Or green herb that was going around quite a lot in that they decade. Were, well, they, they weren't. Uh... <laughs> Names will be changed. Oh, regardless. Um, so anyway... Uh, one night uh, when they were about to sit down and do the Ouija board, they noticed... The, the what board? The weed board. The Ouija board. Ouija board. Um, they noticed that the door was open and there was a draft coming through. So uh, someone said to my dad, I'll go and close the door, will you? Oh, you've um, done this before. Um, carry on. So he went to go and close it, but he got close to the door and he felt a kind of presence like there was something behind the door and it was a door that shut um you know you had to push it rather than pull it to, to close it from that room and uh, my dad went to push it but he felt pressure on the other side of the door like there was someone the draft leaning up against it and um he said oh no i can't i can't close it i don't I don't want to, this is giving me a nasty feeling. And then one of the girls said, oh, don't be so bloody stupid, and got up, and she went and slammed the door. But just as she slammed the door, she let out this scream and jumped back as if she'd like gotten an electric shock from it. And my dad said that a weird light um, sort of travelled from where the door was all across the room and almost kind of like disappeared out the window. Again, not the spirit of a dead person, but a very weird happening. Wow. Oh, and also my grandpa, he, he's no longer with us, so he won't mind if I pass this on. Uh, he grew up in what was a supposedly haunted cottage, and it was one of these old kind of folkloric anniversary hauntings on Midsummer's Eve, every Midsummer's Eve, they would hear footsteps coming up the garden path and the dog would go to the door and growl and its hackles would raise and uh, the footsteps would stop at the front door and invariably someone would go and open it and there was no one there. That happened every Midsummer's Eve. Now either that is a paranormal activity or there was a really cruel friend of the family. The <laughs> Who couldn't wait for Midsummer's Eve that every year? Like, oh yeah, it's coming, it's coming. What should I do this year? What type of footsteps should I do? They go and prank the hearsts. <laughs> then we must remember this was before even the radio. Um, <laughs> so those are my family ghost stories. But uh, 
Yes, there was that was uh, that was Orwell's ghost story, and uh, I'd like to bring up another ghost story, something that our friend Mr. Bounds missed. Uh, I don't know if you remember this from down and out in Paris and London, Simon, but there's a fascinating chapter where Orwell basically just records the folklore of tramps. And I'm going to quote from that now. Two of the tramps had been in Cromley Spike, that's the old kind of workhouse lodging house. Two of the tramps had been in Cromley Spike recently, and they told a ghost story connected with it. Years earlier, they said, there had been a suicide there. A tramp had managed to smuggle a razor into his cell and there cut his throat. In the morning, when the tramp major came round, the body was jammed against the door and to open it they had to break the dead man's arm. In revenge for this, the dead man haunted his cell and anyone who slept there was certain to die within the year. There were copious instances, of course. If a cell door stuck, when you tried to open it, you should avoid that cell like the plague, for it was the haunted one. Now, what do you make of that? Well, tramps, especially in the time he wrote that book, spend their life wandering from various lodging house to various lodging house. And in these lodging houses, they have nothing much to do other than pass on stories, pass on tales that get told to them from a guy they met in another lodging house. And it just seems one of those situations, doesn't it? Like when you're in the Boy Scouts and you go on summer camp and there's always the same ghost story told around the campfire year in, year out. I, uh, as you mentioned, have studied folklore academically and I'm always fascinated by the function of such stories. And I think uh, that the function of this story, it has real, really clear social functions. It's entertaining, for a start, as you mentioned, um, but it also expresses a certain view of life, I think, that might have been common to tramps of the time. There's the, the tramp's ghost has a desire for revenge against the cruel world, yeah. which caused him to kill himself and then broke the arm of his corpse. But don't you think that it's rather telling the ghost's desire for revenge, it's enacted upon not the tramp major or any figure of authority, but it's any other poor tramp who sleeps in that cell. What does that say about human nature and human society? Well, a segment of human society that has, by all accounts, descended to the lowest of the low. So would you say every man for himself? self-pity and when once you reach that that low it becomes about individualism and not not so much communal spirit but it's not a socialist ghost story it, is it, it? very much is in fact it's very much an individualist it really is an individualist um sermon i think also that it's quite telling that this is a very matter of fact record orwell doesn't say you know, this is nonsense, think of the rubbish these people believe. But then again, he doesn't analyse it either. He just records it very dispassionately. And I think that's another sign of his, um, what he might have thought of ghost stories. And, the, you know, he's not saying this is rubbish. He's, he's clearly, he clearly believes there's a, a reason that this story exists. He doesn't comment on it, perhaps because he doesn't want, to become, you know, the guy associated with collecting Tramp's ghost stories. But uh, I think that the fact that he collected it shows that he did have some time for ghost stories, if they yeah. served a, a clear social function. Well, Orwell, throughout his life, despite being an atheist, bemoaned the decline of religion and religious institutions and the comfort it gave to the working man. And I think when he hears of a paranormal activity, he clings to it as a, as a form of comfort from his own belief or disbelief in religion, organised religion. Well, that's similar to what Bounds said, isn't it? Because Bounds made the point that the kind of paranormal touches in 1984, Winston Smith's seeming ability to predict the future Indeed. shows a certain independence yeah. from Big Brother, the independence of the human mind. And that's why I said earlier, I would disagree that this is, uh, shows an inconsistency in Orwell. 
I think it shows a great consistency. He believes in the the sanctity of the human mind and its independence. And also, I mean, Orwell will be thinking, who am I to decry the escapism for these tramps? They come into their lodging house, share these ghost stories, share these tales. I'm not going to start uh, putting down this form of escapism from the pitiful life that they're living. The last thing I want to mention is, uh, I found Orwell, I'm afraid I couldn't share this with you, but I found Orwell's essay on, um, it was a book review actually, of a book called Poltergeists by a guy called uh, Sir Chaveril Sitwell, who was a, a member of the famous eccentric Sitwell family, who we've mentioned before on this podcast. Such a wonderful name. Sitwell. Well, he was, um, so it was Sir Chaveril Sitwell, Osbert Sitwell, and uh, Dame Edith Sitwell were the, the three siblings. Um, it, they're worth looking up. They were classic English. I'd love to go out for a beer with one of their <laughs> descendants. Well, they, they still exist. They still are. Harry Sitwell. They still, oh, you probably went to school with them. Um, <laughs> they, they still own their ancestral hall uh, in England uh, and live there. Um, uh, so he, he wrote this uh, essay, he wrote this book about poltergeists and George Orwell reviewed it. Um, so poltergeists, according to Orwell in this essay, Orwell's opinion is that poltergeists are, quote, not imaginary in the ordinary sense of the word. Orwell thinks that there are three possibilities when it comes to poltergeists. Either they're spirits, which he finds very unlikely as an atheist, it's a form of hypnotism, or it's fraud, which he thinks is kind of the most likely, but it's that in-between psychological aspect that Orwell finds really interesting. He also wrote, and again I'm quoting him here, ghosts are completely uninteresting, I disagree with him myself, but ghosts are completely uninteresting, but the aberrations of the human mind are not. And he thought that the many, many cases, recorded cases of poltergeists through the years, begged the question, why do various people, if spirits don't exist, which he didn't, which he was pretty sure of, if spirits don't exist, why do various people at various times in history either have group hallucinations or create a narrative that makes them look like either fools or liars? And Orwell finishes off by saying that, you know, in his opinion, poltergeist phenomena is a rare and interesting form of insanity, uh, a product of group psychology. So I think, again, that emphasises that any interest Orwell had in the paranormal was either social in its aspect or yeah. psychological. Yeah, I think a combination of the two. But not spiritual. Not yeah. spiritual. I think we can summarise that Orwell was not spiritual. He didn't believe in spirits, he didn't believe in an afterlife, but he would have been fascinated by the socio-political influences of the occult and the socio-cultural reasons for why people believe in this or do such practices. But this is one of the reasons, I think, why he was so into nature, because it was, and I think it's one of the reasons why I'm into nature, you're into nature, because it was something bigger than himself, which contained yeah. mystery, contained awe, but was not based on belief yes. and faith. Um, I'd like to finish off, Simon, by asking you, um, what, which paranormal phenomena do you find most plausible? Do we include... Extraterrestrials? Of course. Then that. Yes, me too. But I, I don't believe they've been to Earth. I don't believe anybody has actually seen a UFO on Earth. So the strange, you believe the strange lights people have seen in the sky can be explained? Very much in the way Orwell saw a ghost in Kent. Um, there would have been something behind it, or perhaps it was an actual military craft, and people were confused, and... I mean, simple things like uh, four trucks hidden in a forest because they're hunting ducks and all their lights reflect off a lake. 
and somebody sees that and thinks they see a UFO and all the engines of the four trucks combined sounds like it and then they think someone's coming so they quickly turn off their lights and the effect of that on a lake looks like something shooting away. Mm. Something even as simply, simply as explained as that. But I do believe there are other planets in, the, in an expanding universe that has no ends on which there is life. Well, it would be intelligent harder, life. It would be harder to believe that there wasn't intelligent exactly. life out there. Um, so somewhere in the universe, there is another planet not too dissimilar to this one in which there are flying objects created by the beings on that planet. Again, um, I absolutely love uh, ghost stories, but I don't have any kind of belief in an afterlife. I'm prepared to you know, hear evidence and consider it and accept it if it satisfies me. But um, I, I, like you, I find extraterrestrial life much more likely than life after death. Yeah. However, the one other um, paranormal phenomenon I find more likely than others is certain mental powers. Uh, if not precognition, then psychokinesis. Or, uh, because I do think that the, the human mind, we know so little about the human mind. Yeah. I think we know more about the bottom of the sea than we know about the human exactly, mind. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't know much about the bottom of the sea. So uh, I think that... Uh, it's curved. I know my mind is curved, certainly <laughs> after three drinks. Um, so anyway, I think we've... Uh, that, I, I quite enjoyed that one. I, I think that went quite well. During I, I mean, this, this was like you going to your Disneyland, wasn't it? Discussing it was. The was, it, was it like you being dragged to Disneyland? I, I did feel like my... Yeah, my other half has dragged me along to Disneyland to look at a parade of a bunch of idiots jumping around in suits. <laughs> oh, no, on. no, I enjoyed it much more than that. It, it was very interesting. More than you expected. Um, like I said, I'm sceptical about us um, attributing certain contextual discussions to Orwell. But on this occasion, I was happy to go along with it. And I'm always happy to hear about your, your passions and, and things that you know a lot about. Well, I enjoyed that very much, Simon. And there's just one more question I want to ask. Um, who's that man with the thin moustache behind you? <laughs> give, give him a bottle of London Pride. <laughs> right, over then. Uh, sleep tight, everyone. Don't have nightmares. Or well, that ends well. Ooh.